Hello everyone, it's Friday the 14th of May and it's a rare evening recording of the Kite Podcast, in the UK at least, um, all will be revealed in a bit. Um, welcome to episode 55 of the Kite Podcast with me, Ben Eagle. Will is busy TV testing today, or has been busy TV testing today, um, but we all hope that he's had good results. But it does mean that he sadly isn't joining us today. He will be back with us next week, though. Before we start, um, I just wanted to pass on a message from John, who wants to remind us all that, yet again, the great British dairy industry owes Kite a favour for organising a week's rain by doing a podcast on the drought. Donations gratefully received, which will be used to sponsor Becky with her run. As regular listeners amongst you will know, uh, we've been talking more and more about climate recently on the show. Um, and with this in mind, I'm thrilled to introduce today's guest, who will be ruminating with us about climate today. Uh, many of you on Twitter will know him through his handle, uh, GHG Guru, but we must also uh, give him his formal title as Professor um, air and Air Quality Extension Specialist at the University of California, Davis. He's also director of at the Clear Centre. Um, Frank Midlerner um, is on the show. Welcome, Frank. Um, we're also joined by Kite's Head of Sustainability, Rachel Madeley-Davis, and as always, by everybody's favourite dairy market analyst, Chris Walkland. Chris, it's over to you for the Milk Market Report. Where are you this week? Well, I'm getting up close and personal with all this climate change rock and I'm bringing you my report from an iceberg somewhere in the Atlantic. And we've got no time to lose because A, it's melting, B, we've got a brilliant guest on the show, and C, my bum's cold. We've also got to be quick because despite the world being 4.5 billion years old, to clarify, that's 4.500, zero 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 we only have 10 years <laughs> one and just the one zero left to save the planet say some of our gloomiest climate scientists actually they said that in 2019 so we've only got eight years left still flash gordon only had 14 hours to save the earth and there was only one of him but cometh the ghg hour Cometh the GHG man, or rather the at GHG guru man, our guest, Mr. Frank. Because our industry's hero, that's Frank, not Flash, is working hard to convince everybody that our friendly moo cows are not the bad GHG guys. Because methane, or methane as the Americans call it, is not the bad GHG guy either. But are people in the corridors of power listening? They need to, so I guess we'll find out soon. And if you haven't seen some of Frank's talks or videos, then watch them. They're excellent. Better than Flash Gordon, just without the lavish costumes and hysterical girlfriends. <laughs> but Frank, if you do want a hysterical woman in your videos, Becky's from South Yorkshire and they do hysteria <laughs> very well there. Anyway, before you rush off to YouTube, there's my market report to endure. And the excellent news this week is that after a flat few weeks, butter has increased pretty significantly, up 60 euros for Dutch to 3980, where the market, the real market is. 
and the average EU price is nearer 4,100 euros than 4,000, so a pretty good price. And it seems to have shrugged off negativity seen over Easter. The fact Europe is now past peak would also be helping these prices. Skim milk powder is now at a very healthy 2,600 euros within the top 10 prices for the last six years. And they, uh, with butter, return an ampy price of 32p after transport, but before a processor margin. So about 30p to farmers. And Farmgate prices are closing in on that 30p level for a standard litre. Many prices are there in Northern Ireland, but only two in GB, Arla and Crediton. However, more do get close in July, but not over just yet. In the UK, butter and cream prices haven't moved for a week or two now, and cream is still languishing in the mid-130s. Liquid processes can't pay 30p at that rate. Uh, but the expectation is cream will go up soon. Uh, milk volumes from here on in will govern how much and how quickly. EU butter futures are looking more positive, so that will help. They're up for the second week on the trot, and it's the same story for skim powder futures. Not so good down under in New Zealand, though. And adding to the positivity here are young cheeses, with prices also going in the right direction. Curd is up, Gouda and Edam are up, mozzarella is up. So another indication of things picking up in Europe, if not over here. Uh, as with cream, spot milk is okay. It hasn't dropped below 20p. It's holding at that level, but it might start to rise soon as UK volumes seem to or may have peaked. They hit 46 million litres a day, a new record on the 24th of April. And GB volumes so far have topped out at 37.8. But that's too soon to say if we've peaked here. So that's it from me. It's now time to defrost my buttocks and swim for it. So a bit of global warming in my direction will be most welcome. At the rate I swim, it should take me about eight years to get back. Just in time to find out if those brilliant but rather gloomy scientists have saved the world or not. I hope so. Goodbye. <laughs> Ever the adventurer, Chris Walkland, everybody. <laughs> Thank you, Chris. Um, now, it's with great pleasure um, that we welcome Frank to the show today. Um, it was actually John who saw you, Frank, um, presented a CMEX session a couple of weeks ago, um, and uh, his words resonated with a lot of the conversations um, that colleagues at Kite have been having in recent months. Um, so we were really thrilled to have you um, here today. Um, so you're a professor and air quality extension specialist at UC Davis. I mean, we haven't got the hours that some podcasts have for this subject, um, but uh, Frank, can you give the listeners a bit of a crash course, first of all, on, on the role of ruminant livestock on the climate from your perspective? Um, and we're thinking in terms of GWP 100 here, for example. Different livestock species have different kinds of impacts. Uh, the one that receives the most attention are ruminants, so animals with four stomachs that uh, have the capacity of eating non-human edible feed, uh, such as grasses, legumes, and so on. Uh, and the reason why they have the capacity is because they have microbes in this very large first compartment, the so-called rumen, 
Um, and uh, these microbes can break down, for example, cellulose, um, which is the world's most abundant feedstuff, by the way, or most abundant biomass. They can burn it, they can break it down. These microbes can break it down. And this is wonderful because that allows us to make use of two thirds of agricultural land in the world that would otherwise not be usable because these are the marginal lands. And you have a lot of those in, in the UK, a lot of these uh, grasslands that otherwise would not be usable for human food production. But because of ruminant livestock, we are capable of doing so. But there's an unintended consequence. And that unintended consequence is that these microbes, when they break down cellulose, produce methane gas. That methane gas, or as you say, uh, methane gas, that gas uh, will come out the front end of a cow, uh, be belched out, uh, and some of it will also be uh, coming off the manure. And so this methane gas is a potent greenhouse gas. Okay? And I want everybody to know that uh, methane is nothing to sneeze at, so to say, no pun intended. It is a potent greenhouse gas. It's almost 30 times more potent than CO2. But um, there are some, some differences between methane and other greenhouse gases that had previously been overlooked. Um, so in the past, um, a unit was used GWP100, which just compares methane and nitrous oxide directly to CO2. And it offers con uh, conversion factors that arrive at CO2 equivalent uh, emission units. So for example, methane is 20, 28 times more potent than CO2. Hence, if you have a farm, you produce 10 tons of methane, all they need to do is multiply that 10 tons times the factor, which is 28, and then they arrive at the CO2 equivalent amount of greenhouse gases. The same is true for nitrous oxide, which is 265 times more potent than, methane, uh, than CO2. Um, so that, that is an old system, okay? And the problem is, and uh, one of the professors in the UK by the name of Professor Miles Allen was the first one to point this out, that this unit GWP100 that was used to compare methane and nitrous oxide to CO2, that that unit does not really properly account for something that's really relevant. Namely, the fact that methane is not only produced, but methane is also atmospherically removed. There is an atmospheric removal process. It destroys methane, okay? So methane is both produced, but it's also destroyed. CO2 is not. CO2 is only produced, but not destroys, destroyed in the atmosphere. Hence, um, CO2 has a lifespan of a thousand years. Methane has a lifespan of approximately a decade. Before we go on, um, just for listeners, because I know that you can get a bit stuck in terminology here, but can you just explain the difference between GWP100 and GWP star? Yeah, GWP100 was a unit that was first um, brought about in 1990 uh, during the Kyoto Climate Accord deliberations. And um, it was policymakers who asked the, the scientist community to please help them compare other greenhouse gases to CO2. And so a table was generated with 20 footnotes underneath. The footnotes were cut off and nobody read them, but they should have because just looking at the table was a drastic uh, oversimplification. GWP100 does not account for the atmospheric removal of methane. It acts as if it were to behave the same way as CO2, namely only accumulating in the atmosphere. GWP100 does not account for the short lifespan of methane, approximately a decade, and not for the atmospheric removal. 
This is like you going to your bank and saying, you know, banker, from now on, I will only talk to you about my income. Forget my expenses. We are now only talking about my income. That's what we're doing with methane, okay? We're only looking at the one side and not the other side. We're only looking at the production of that gas, but not the destruction of that gas. And that is not fair to our farmers. It's not fair to other sources of methane, particularly biogenic methane. So now what uh, Miles Allen and colleagues have done is they generated a new unit called GWP star, which does take care of the atmospheric removal of methane and hence, which does translate directly into warming impacts of a sector like the livestock sector. And, uh, and it does it very well. That unit is a unit that's gaining a lot of attention internationally. Currently the FAO, the Food and Agricultural Organization of the United Nations is looking at it. The IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel for Climate Change is looking at it. And I hope that GWP 100 will be replaced by a unit that actually accurately uh, uh, addresses the impacts of that important gas on warming because initially somebody said methane is not that important methane is very important but methane is not just a challenge methane is a massive opportunity because if we reduce this gas we can really help with our climate debate and our climate situation overall okay that's interesting I mean, you, you mentioned the fao and the ipcc there I mean, how likely do you think it is that we'll see a revision of IPCC methodology? Um, and if so, what might that look like? Well, my guess is as good as yours. Uh, what I can tell <laughs> you is this, the FAO in Rome installed a global task force of 60 scientists, one of the largest ones they ever installed, uh, to look into this GWP star and also this biogenic carbon cycle, which is the cycle of carbon from atmospheric CO2 to plant carbohydrates to animal uh, produced methane and then back to CO2. That's the biogenic carbon cycle so this uh, this task force this fao task force is working on a report that will be re released in two in two months uh, on whether or not we should use the gwp star and whether or not we are currently looking at methane the right way or whether we need to change the narrative you know my opinion i think we definitely need to change the narrative because looking at that gas without uh, addressing the fact that there's an atmospheric removal is just incorrect and unfair in um, in a big way. And the reason why I say that is not because I want to uh, support some farmers or so, but the reason why I say that is because farmers can be an important part of a solution here, okay? Why not making them being part of the solution? If they can reduce methane and if they can induce negative warming, which is cooling, then why wouldn't we want them to be? Rachel, let's bring you in here. Um... What does all this mean in the context of Paris, let's say, of the Paris Agreement and in the run-up to COP26 in Glasgow later this year? I think, first of all, sort of once a lawyer, always a lawyer. And I think the bit that really strikes me is in terms of the Paris Agreement, there is this sort of phrase of using the best available science. And I think it almost, it's a matter of, you know, putting their money where their mouth is, isn't it? And actually... What it means is all the policies need to be determined by that best available science. And it, it's quite clear, you know, Frank has so clearly and eloquently laid out this development in science, and actually how far we've moved on um, you know, since GWP, uh, GWP 100. Um, and I think there really does need to be this focused on the fact that there needs to be transparency around the science and the fact that it evolves. Um, I think, you know, the implication that a balance of sources and sinks leads to sort of negative warming and not the stabilisation of temperatures does need to be understood and be um, implemented more. 
um, you know, this sort of linking emissions to temperatures is more aligned to, to the relevant parts of the Paris Agreement. So with my lawyer's hat on, it, it's much more about drumming down that detail of what was agreed in Paris and actually how we can use that to the advantage of this. Yeah. I want, um, I want to say one more thing to that. Oh, I didn't mean to cut you off. I, I, no, you no, it's no. a discussion. Yeah, so let you go for it. You're, you're, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we have a little time delay here going across the Atlantic. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, 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 but I, I wanted to say this. The Paris Climate Accord is all about limiting additional warming below two degrees centigrade, right? That's what this is all about. It's not about limiting certain amounts of tonnage of carbon, but it is to lower additional warming. So what we should really think about is not the carbon footprint of a sector, but the warming footprint of a sector. And in order to have a unit that's fit for purpose, we need to have a unit that looks at the impact of methane on warming. And GWP 100 doesn't do that. It only translates it into CO2E, not into warming. GWP star does convert it into warming. So. Uh, and if you can show that by continuously reducing methane, you reach a point within 10, 15 years where your dairy or beef sector is climate neutral, then that is a language the Paris Climate Accord will understand because that's what it's all about. Last not least, Bill Clinton, our former president, you know, not loved by everybody, but he once said something really smart. He was talk, you know, talked to about climate and, uh, and carbon and so on. And he said to that person, let's, talk, let's stop talking about carbon. It's all about warming, stupid, he said. It's all about warming, stupid. And what he meant to, to say is, it is about the warming sector or uh, the warming impact of a sector that we want to reduce. It's not just about carbon counting. It is about limiting additional warming. And this is why I'm so bullish about this GWP star, because that's what allows us to do that. Let's bring this back to farmers. Um, would a change in calculation, in terms of real change on the ground, would it change what farmers are asked to do um, to contribute to reducing climate impact in terms of ruminant agriculture? So first of all, I want everybody to understand that GWP star does not at all constitute a get jail a get get out of jail free card okay i don't want anybody to think that just changing the unit will uh, will be a brilliant thing yep. if you increase methane by growing herd sizes or by doing something that increases that gas then gwp star will make you look worse than gwp 100 okay what i can tell you from miles allen is that constant cattle herds uh, for example in your country are currently um uh, quantified with respect to their carbon impact in, uh, you know, in a, in a, to a factor four times above what's real, okay? Four times exaggerated um, uh, carbon emissions from a constant herd at, at this point. What I can tell you too is if your farmers manage to reduce methane, then uh, this new, new unit will look uh, really, really good because of, of how it depicts methane. It depicts methane in a much more crucial way, in a much more important way. Don't increase it because it's a potent gas. But if you decrease it, then beautiful things will happen. And so to me, this is not a super pollutant as much as it is a super opportunity. And one that enables our farming sector to be part of this solution. I cannot overemphasize that. If you show your farming sector that by reducing, let's say, greenhouse gases by 1% annually, they can reach climate neutrality in 10 or 15 years, or the point by which they will not affect the climate in any negative way, gives them not just hope, 
but something to work toward. And then all you need to do is establish milestones and incentivize these techniques and technologies. Yes, also with taxpayers' money, because it's a public good. And, and then you get someplace. Rachel, I, I want to balance that back to you, but because Frank raised um, public money there, um, public goods, I mean, let's talk about the politics as well, because we can't ignore that. Um, science obviously leads the way, but policy is driven by other factors too. Where are we now um, from where you're sitting in terms of global politics and, and how is this driving policy? Um, what, for example, will be the impact of President Biden and, and of course, um, the repercussions of COVID as well? I mean, massive subject there, but we're, we're linking two massive subjects together. Yeah, cheers, Ben. Um, <laughs> Anytime. I, I think ultimately we need to remember this is a global issue. And I, and I think sometimes that almost, it feels like it gets overlooked, um, doesn't it, at national level, but it's a global issue and therefore we do need a global plan. Um, and I think, again, I mean, I sort of mentioned a moment ago about the fact that this year has accelerated. And there's a great quote from Macron that basically this year, sort of 2030 has become the new 2050. And it's so true in terms of sort of climate ambition. And, and we, you know, we know from the UK ourselves that we've um, sort of drawn in our, our climate ambitions sort of more um, to be more ambitious in sort of recent weeks. So I, I think we need to remember that there is a real driver globally at the moment. However, it, it's it's can be quite a fragmented picture. Um, I mean, bouncing back to Biden, I mean, obviously, you know, in his sort of first days of office, you know, he sort of was quick to rejoin the Paris Agreement. Um, you know, and, and has recently, I think last month, made um, some sort of ambitious plans to cut sort of carbon emissions by 50 to 52 percent by 2030. Um, however, I think globally, actually, he's had quite a lot of criticism because of this sort of um, it's almost the hokey cokey version. They're sort of they're in and out. And that's a problem. And in terms of politics, in the US, it's really complex um, because obviously you've, you've got you've got Congress as well. And, and that's a problem at the moment is there's a real pressure um, for him to get it legally binding, like we do have in the UK as well. Is, is, and this is looking at it very simplistically, but is there a point that we should be aiming for, Frank, in, in terms of, I suppose, the ideal number of cows globally from a climate perspective? Should we be reducing numbers by, I don't know, 2%, for example? Well, I'll give you an example. So uh, here in the United States, we used to have 25 million dairy cows. That was back in the 1950s, 25 million. Today, we have 9 million dairy cows actually fewer dairy cows than horses in the United States today, okay? So we went from, we have nine and a half million horses. So we went from 25, my, my wife always says, I'm the greatest source of useless information. Great <laughs> <laughs> in a quiz. So we, went from, Absolutely. We went from, so we went from 25 to 9 million dairy cows, but we are producing 60% more milk with this much smaller herd. And that has reduced the carbon footprint of a liter of milk by two thirds here in the United States. So now I just told you we have 9 million dairy cows. In India, they have 300 million dairy cows and buffalo, 300 million. And the reason why their herd size is so enormous is because the efficiency is so dismal, okay? Each individual animal produces a tiny amount, 10 to 20 times less milk as the cow here. So they could, if their dairy mark, if their dairy system were to be better developed, produce the same amount of milk as they do today with one-tenth of their cows. With one-tenth of their cows. And the situation is even worse in many African countries where animals, let's say cattle, live until they naturally die, fall over of old age, because these herds of cattle are the piggy bank of the tribe or family, the retirement account, so to say, and not a food item that you raise to eat 
in a short amount of time. So when you look at that, and the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel for Climate Change, enumerated that, then the developing countries in the world, the developing countries in the world produce anywhere between 70 to 80 percent of all livestock-related greenhouse gases in the world. Please do not mistake that as me pointing fingers at others, saying we do things great and they don't. This is not what this is about, but this is about uh, offering areas of opportunities for us to work together to improve the global uh, impact of livestock. And, uh, you know, I think this is really important for us to rally around. Don't I do a, I'm, now I'm biased with kind stuff, but we issued a pretty pioneering report actually, it was last year, it was before this all became really sort of mainstream. So it's our 2030 document where we were horizon scanning to 2030. And basically, the, the, the sort of top line message is it's about getting more from less. Um, and actually, we've, you know, we've made fantastic strides, haven't we, in this country in terms of genetic improvements, nutritional development. And actually, it's about utilising this innovation technology to ensure that we get more, but from fewer cows. And that's where you can really start to see, using the, the amazing science that Frank's sort of outlined to us, how you start to have that negative warming or cooling effect. I was going to say we'll finish um, finish in a UK context, but I am conscious that we have international listeners as well. Um, so uh, it's beyond UK as well. But I mean, Frank, what would your advice be to our listeners in terms of what what could they be doing in practical terms if they want to continue farming livestock in the future, but also not having um, a negative impact on the climate? And, and that that's in the context of, of our conversation uh, this evening. So I think the first thing that farmers need to do is appreciate that they are producing goods for people who are concerned about this topic, okay? This topic of climate change is very much of a concern to society, particularly the younger ones in society. Um, it is important to emphasize that most farming sectors in the UK, in the US and other places have quantified using life cycle assessments and all different kinds of monitoring techniques and technologies, what their impacts are. We now know what the methane intensity is when producing a liter of milk in the UK or a pound or kilogram of meat. And so we know that. We also see that there are organizations like uh, commodity organizations that have set uh, goals for further reductions. These goals are not some greenwashing or creative accounting, but these are serious goals that these livestock organizations try to achieve. There are scientists like myself who will help this sector by doing research and publishing this, publishing the results to show what kind of techniques can be used to further reduce impacts. I think what you need to do as a farmer is acknowledge the impacts you have, set out goals to reach and work toward them diligently and tell the public that you care because you do care. And nobody cares more about the stewardship of your land, the stewardship of your animals the stewardship of the, the products you produce, the milk or meat or whatever you produce, as well as the stewardship over the people who work with you. And of course, you are also a steward of your finances and society has to understand that. You have to be enumerated in ways that are fair. And in most cases throughout the farming sector, throughout the world, that's not happening anymore. Many of our farmers are not getting paid the way they should be. I have one more statistics for you. And I think this is an important one. It's one from the United States. We have a human population here of 330 million people, 2 million farms. Of the 2 million farms in the United States, 1.5 million 
so the majority, have an annual revenue of less than $25,000. In the United States today, there are 80,000 farms that produce two thirds of all food we all consume. And the average age of these 80,000 farmers is 60. They are nearing retirement age. And I tell you what, these people are thinking right now, shall I stay in, shall I not? Shall I or not hand this over to my kids? And I hope the answer is yes, please stay in and please encourage your, your, uh, your offspring to take over because if you don't, then we will have a real issue, a big issue, a bigger issue than we can all imagine because we will not produce food here. And who knows where that food will come from and how it will be produced. The same is true for your country. And that's my pledge to people out there. Please consider what you're doing when you're bashing these farmers. These people are putting all that food you consume every day into your mouths, whether you like it or not, that's what's happening. These people deserve better. And I think we all have a responsibility in this. Well, we will leave it there. That is all we have time for, but a huge thank you to our guest today, Frank Midlearner, Rachel Maitland-Davis and Chris Walkland. Um, a reminder that you can follow Frank on Twitter at GHGGuru. Thank you very much for listening. We'll be back with Will next Friday. But for now, it's goodbye from all of us here.